How's that level? Good? Great. Thanks. Thank you. So I'm going to imitate my student. Hello, dear ones. (laughs) See, we can always learn. I hope you've had a good day of talking. And that um, you've kept your balance. Because sometimes after all this silence, even though we've been talking in the afternoon, when we start to relate in the kind of way that we usually relate, it can feel a little... I remember myself, I would always try to hide when the talking came. (laughs) But it wasn't always, I wasn't always successful. Ah, So tonight we're going to talk about um, the seventh factor of awakening, which is equanimity. And when when we were emailing, Eugene and I were emailing about what we were going to talk about, I've immediately volunteered for this talk because I love equanimity. I am, it's one of my favorite things to um, reflect on, to practice, and to teach. And it's a really, I, I don't find it that easy actually to practice, but it's certainly worth worthwhile. So in the time we've been together, we've had a journey. We've traveled the journey of mindfulness as prescribed by the Satipatthana Sutta on the establishment of of mindfulness and the fourth foundation of mindfulness uh, through the first six factors of awakening. So mindfulness... um, working with the mindfulness of the four foundations of body, Vedana, Chitta, mind, heart, or thoughts and emotions, and Dhamma. And uh, the fourth foundation is probably the most complex because it has, um, I think, there are 108 objects of um, possible objects of mindfulness in it. It's a really, it's a good read if you, ever, if you haven't read it. And it's the Four Noble Truths and the Five Aggregates and the Five Hindrances and the Six Sense Bases and the Seven, and to the, or, or Doors, to the Seven Factors of Awakening. And in those, within those categories, um, we're asked to uh, observe presence and absence of each of the elements. And so by the time you get through um, all of the all of the, the ways that it's recommended that you're mindful, it's actually 108. And um, so mindfulness, investigation, 
energy or effort arising that we apply to practice, the arising of joy or joyful interest or what we call piti, calm, tranquility or pasadi, and concentration or sati. And tonight we'll consider this seventh factor of awakening. So we can approach spiritual life uh, as recommended by the teachings from the bottom up, like climbing a mountain. And we only saw the beginning of that um, video that I really wanted you to see because I wanted it to be, I wanted you to have such a somatic experience of, uh, of piti, but it was not to be. But I think in, in that, um, we at least got, got to see enough where he says, uh, we, if the mountain was smooth, we couldn't climb it, right? So we're climbing this mountain um, and the, the approach of spiritual life, uh, the approach in spiritual life can be um, climbing a mountain in which we feel unworthy or we try to change or we try to purify or transform or make the self uh, better. And we won't discuss the self tonight or that issue. <laughs> That's a whole other ball of wax, as they say. And that's a whole other retreat. But it's what um, my teacher Jack Cornfield calls the divine mixed up with dieting in our minds. Or Alan Watts calls religion as a grim duty where we try to fix ourselves. But there's another way that these seven, that these seven factors uh, point to and it's, an, it's a basic understanding of our fundamental wakefulness, that it's already here, that there's nothing that we have to, we don't have to go shopping for it. Um, but it's understanding of our, that wakefulness that we actually do have as human beings and of kindness and compassion, which is our true nature but that the luminosity of the heart is obscured and caught in confusion, in fears, in desires. And so we lose our way. Uh, we, lo- we lose touch with openness, our basic and fundamental openness or freedom. And this awakening to freedom, the Buddha taught as the seven factors of enlightenment or of awakening, which as uh, described in the text as the, the ways in which um, the enlightened heart or the awakened mind may manifest. I like to use awakening rather than enlightenment because Enlightenment is such a charged word, so you'll hear me use awakening rather than enlightenment, and I think we've been doing that this week anyway. But awakening 
can be known, can be experienced right here and right now in this body, in this mind, in this heart. And these factors that we've been working with, as you've probably noticed if you've, and I know you've been paying beautiful attention, these factors, these qualities of mind and heart appear and disappear from time to time and in different ways for each of us. So we speak to these factors not so much as uh, developing them or in the notion of development, but more of a kind of remembering, which is the word for sati also, remembering or a remembering. And this remembering as a fundamental spiritual practice that has many different levels. So we're bringing all of the members of this body, mind, and heart back into one whole. And it's also remembering something that's deep within us. It's not out there, but actually our birthright. The texts do address us as, O nobly born, we are the sons, you are the sons and daughters of the Buddha. So we remember, it's good to remember who we truly are, to remember our inherent goodness, our inherent nobility, our wakefulness, our true nature. And as you know by now, it's mindfulness which is the balancing factor, and then the arousing factors of clear seeing or investigation, vitality or aliveness or energy or effort, is, all of that is the same one, and joy. And then the calming factors, tranquility or calm, Pam so beautifully spoke about last night, I'm sorry, the night before, and concentration that Eugene so beautifully spoke of last night. And then there's equanimity, balance in the midst of the flow of life. So having worked with the first six, tonight we're considering the seventh, Upeka. And Upeka has the um, quality of looking over, of being um, somewhat elevated and therefore seeing the whole landscape. And I looked it up because I'm now a student of Eugene's. I looked up the definition. And uh, it's, it's the best definition seemed to be stability in the face of the fluctuations of worldly fortune evenness of mind, unshakable freedom of mind, a state of inner equipoise that cannot be upset by gain and loss, honor and dishonor, aka fame and disrepute, praise and blame, and pleasure and pain. And I'm going to repeat it for you. 
stability in the face of the fluctuations of worldly fortune and misfortune, evenness of mind, unshakable freedom of mind, a state of inner equipoise, I love that word, equipoise, that cannot be upset by gain and loss, honor and dishonor, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. That's quite a um, quite a description of a um, a quality of mind and heart that is innate in us that we may have lost, but we can that we can recover. And so equanimity is pointing to um, a timeless quality of being alive. The reality of a present moment, vast space of silence. So that from moment to moment to moment, there's an underlying um, uh, vast supply of silence and balance and poise and ease that is our birthright as we who are nobly born. And if we, if we think about the Buddha and his life, we know that he may have been um, his, his consciousness may have been in Nibbana, but he ate. He, had, he often had backache and would tell Ananda, his cousin, to go do the Dharma talk. He slept, he talked to people, he organized monasteries, he did healings, he solved problems, he debated with the Brahmins, he had political conversations, with kings and chiefs while he was in Nibbana. His eyes weren't closed and he wasn't um, zoning out, but actually tuning in. And so that's a beautiful um, template for us. And one Indian sage whose name I can't remember, but I read because I read it a long time ago. But he said, from that place of nibbana, nothing happens. So all this practicing that you're doing, good luck. And this is from Chuang Su. When a man is crossing a river, and an empty boat collides with his own skiff. He will not shout and get angry because there is no one in the boat. But if a boat with someone in it collides with his boat, he will shout and get angry, all because there is someone in the boat. If you can empty your boat crossing the river of the world, no one will shout at you and no one will be angry.
So equanimity is related to the crown chakra, the highest chakra in the center of energy in the body, where consciousness rises. And from that consciousness, we can look at, from, from a place above, we can see the whole dance of life. And we can see it and realize that it happens to no one. No one is born and no one dies. And none of us exists in the way that you think we exist. A child becomes an adult, so is no longer a child. And that same child is going to be a corpse someday. Look again. Everything seems real. (laughs) And then you won't be here. None of us, not one of us. You'll be absent. And yet, while we're here, it feels as if it's all um, a fabrication of this one person, that it's all revolving around this one person who's creating the world. And in some ways, that is true. And yet, will the world disappear when this person disappears? So sights and sounds and conversations that we have, and you know how it is, right? We can have a conversation and we walk away thinking that one thing happened and the other person in the conversation thinks something completely different happened. How does that happen? And that's not who we are. Who we think we are is not who we are. We have this human experience for a certain time and a place of understanding and equanimity sees the birth and the death and the um, the whole unfolding and coming in and going out of the world and yet it rests like a mountain. You receive and rest in the midst of it allowing wild things and pastoral things and beautiful things of the earth. And we all have that. And it comes alive in us as we grow and mature in our wisdom. And when I think of our growing and maturing in wisdom, I think of Gandhi. When the person who, was, who attempted to assassinate him was grabbed by the police, Gandhi said, oh, that poor man, what will happen to him now that he has failed in his attempt? How beautiful is that? How that is such a beautiful example of equanimity. So the idea of karma is that you continually get the teachings that you need to open your heart. And hopefully 
you have gotten teachings here this week that have done just that. This is from Pema Chodron. To the degree that you didn't understand in the past how to stop protecting your soft spot, how to stop armoring your heart, you're given this gift of teachings in the form of your life. You continually get the teachings that you need to open your heart, to give you everything you need to open further. So equanimity is based on this deep understanding to which Pema refers. And equanimity is a kind, I think of it as a kind of empress of qualities, of qualities described in the Buddhist teachings. So it's the fourth of the Brahma Viharas, of the four Brahma Viharas, it's the tenth of the ten perfections, it's the seventh of the seventh factor of awakening. So it appears to be the place where we land when our practice matures. And as we release um, identification with this body, mind, heart, this process through, through our practice, when insight arises into impermanence and the impersonal nature of everything that is everything being ungraspable and unsatisfactory next. We begin to realize equanimity. It begins a deep letting go of our attachment to ideas or versions of our self our ideas, our beliefs, our images, our feelings, our fears, and even our body are known as temporary conditions and not ours. And although sometimes that may seem a little bit scary, it actually brings profound equanimity and uh, liberation. So equanimity, or upeka, uh, is translated in various ways. Discerning rightly, looking over, viewing justly, getting a larger view, and perceiving presently with evenness of mind. So all of the definitions that I found are, speak to a larger picture, a way of looking so that we're in a way looking down, although it's not looking down in the sense that something, of something being lower, but looking down in the sense of a panoramic view. And in that, in being able to view justly and to discern rightly and to look over, it becomes the ground for wisdom and freedom and the protector of compassion and love.
And it's said in the text that it's to balance the mind before it falls into extremes and leads to spaciousness and the door through which freedom enters. So it's not to be trifled with, is what I say. And it's a heart, an at-ease heart in the midst of the world. Like, and it reminds me of uh, Kuan Yin, who is always, see- she's either standing or seated, but it, whenever her statues, it, there's always a serene feeling about the statues of Kuan Yin. And she's often described as hearing the cries of the world. And yet, she remains serenely compassionate. And for me, that's, that's the ultimate um, example of equanimity. So it's balance of mind and meeting the challenge to stay open to see things exactly as they are. Now, one of the issues with equanimity, and I, whenever I teach it, there's, there are always questions about um, how it can, it can feel like indifference. It can feel like you don't care about what you're seeing or what you're, what you're living through. That it's kind of dry and neutral and cool and aloof or detached, or disconnected, or, indif- or indifferent, and nothing matters. But that couldn't be further from the truth of equanimity. Mature equanimity manifests as a radiance and a warmth, and because it transforms what we usually, what is usually reactive into what is responsive, there is a beautiful illuminated radiance about it. The Buddha described a mind filled with equanimity as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. And the instructions given are, a disciple dwells pervading one direction with her heart filled with equanimity. Likewise, the second, the third, and the fourth directions. So above, below, and around, she dwells pervading the entire world everywhere and equally with her heart filled with equanimity, abundant, grown great, measureless, free from enmity and free from distress. I should just stop there. And that goes for men too. I, I um, translated the Buddha's words into the, f- the feminine. pervading the entire world everywhere and equally 
with his heart filled with equanimity, abundant, grown great, measureless, free from enmity, and free from distress. We could describe this as spacious stillness of the mind, in a way, a radiant calm that allows full presence, even though the world is revolving and changing and our experiences of um, all qualities of all kinds, whether they are positive or negative or neutral, that that there is still this spaciousness, spacious stillness of mind and a radiant calm. This means that the beginning of our response to what is true is the same regardless of the quality or the nature of the Vedana, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. There is acceptance, and in that acceptance, equanimity pervades. So it means, it doesn't mean that we don't respond. It means that we respond appropriately, not with reactivity, but with responsiveness. Because we see what is true in order to accept as the first step in responding. And then our response is not born of struggle or resistance. So there are two Pali words used by the Buddha to represent equanimity. And each represents a different aspect of it. So the most common word, as I said before, that is used to indicate in Pali, equanimity is upeka, meaning to look over, as I said. And it refers to the equanimity that comes as a result of observation, the power of observation, the ability to see without being caught in reactivity or overwhelmed by what we see. And then that leads to peacefulness. And then we can meet all experience with strength and softness or fluidity of heart and mind that isn't caught by circumstances. And that that is really accessing the, uh, the, the underlying nature of the mind not caught by passion or confusion. And upeka can also refer to the ease that sees that wider picture that I talked about before. And I love this, that colloquially in India, um, the word upeka means to see with patience. And the reason that I love it is because um, patience is what's what is instructed in the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification, which is a text written after the Buddha's time. Um, it, we're instructed in that when we do Brahma Vihara practice to um, 
first uh, reflect on um, the dangers and hatred and the benefits of patience. That that should be the first step in in metta practice. That first we understand how dangerous hatred is and we understand how beneficial it is to develop patience. So this form of equanimity is sometimes compared to grandmotherly, grandmotherly love. The grandmother who loves her children, but based on her mater- maternal experience, is less likely to be caught up in the drama of her children, of her grandchildren's lives. You, know, you, you, you who are parents understand what that means. And the second word often translated as equanimity is, are you ready for this? Tatra majatata. <laughs> Tatra meaning there, and which sometimes refers to all these things. Eugene, I hope you're enjoying this. Maja means middle, and tata means to stand or to pose. So it means to stand in the middle of all this. Or sometimes it's, it's uh, translated as to sit in the middle of the world. And that's what we've been doing this week. We've been sitting in the middle of the world. Tatramajatata. So being in the middle refers to balance, to centering, remaining centered in the middle of all the comings and goings. And this is not an imposed uh, balance, but it's a balance that comes from inner strength or stability. That we, because we are seeing a larger picture, the, the inner life is stable. The inner life is balanced. And so we begin to see a wider view. We have a wider view. So inner calm, well-being, confidence, vitality, and integrity. And I want to add generosity to that. Bring stability to the system. And it's, it's like um, ballast to a ship in strong winds. So as inner strength develops, Equanimity follows. And you've probably heard before in equanimity talks that it is uh, ubiquitous in the teachings as a protection against the eight worldly winds or vicissitudes. And these constantly arise and pass away in all of our human lives and their timing is not within our control. Praise and blame, uh, gain and loss, sometimes you'll see it as success and failure, pleasure and pain, and fame and disrepute. And sometimes you'll see fame and disrepute as honor and dishonor. I often wonder whether (coughs) birth and death should have been part of, should have been the last two. 
ten, ten vicissitudes rather than eight, but we probably have enough to deal with with eight. I shouldn't add to our vicissitudes. So we can become attached, right, to the positive side of those um, praise and success or gain and pleasure and fame. And we obviously don't want the the other side. But if we become attached, we know what happens, is when we believe that our happiness depends on the the first, the, the four in the credit side, always appearing in our lives, we will inevitably uh, suffer when the winds of life change direction. So success can be wonderful, but if it leads to arrogance, we have more to lose when we're challenged. Uh, investing in praise can lead to conceit. Identifying with failure or loss, we can um, feel, we can feel incompetent or inadequate or victimized. Reacting to pain, we can become discouraged or judge ourselves for our inability to bear it. And if we feel that our inner well-being is um, independent of the eight winds, then we're more likely to remain grounded and on an even keel when the winds come blow up. And in the texts, it talks about, um, they talk about supports for equanimity as integrity, faith, a well-developed mind, Allah, the seven factors of awakening. So you're well ahead of the game from this week. a sense of well-being and wisdom, those five. And then the final support is freedom, which uh, starts to appear when we begin to let go of our reactive tendencies. So one of the things that I know happens when we hear teachings on equanimity is we begin to think that we have to be passive. And especially, I know students who are activists start to get a little bit wary 
of um, what is being taught because it feels like um, equanimity is a passive way of being. But actually, it is incredibly active. It is a, it's, it's a way of being in an active mode and being completely engaged with the world without being blown about by the winds that come. So that um, what it's pointing to, I think, is a, is a real strength of um, responsiveness that allows us to stay grounded even in the most difficult challenges of working with systems that are oppressive or working with uh, um, controversy or uh, challenges that may feel um, as if they are so systemically endemic that it is difficult to move them. But equanimity can come from observation and it can come from inner balance. And those two are what you have been working with this week in the power of mindfulness. That is what mindfulness, when practiced diligently, produces. It's an inner balance and um, mindfulness. And as mindfulness gets stronger, so does our equanimity. We see with greater independence and freedom because we are not seeing through the, um, through the lens of what we want and what we think should be happening but we're rather we're seeing truly through the lens of what is true, what is here right now. And so equanimity gives us balance that allows us to see through to the joys and the sorrows of the world, which we talked about a few nights ago. Anything other than a benevolent response to other beings, to our lives or to life itself, is the beginning of suffering. So people like Kuan Yin and Martin Luther King and Gandhi Mother Teresa, powerfully affect the world, even in the most difficult of circumstances. And I think what they all have in common is this ability to be with what is difficult without being thrown around by these winds. This is, um, sorry, this is Martin Luther King which I think this is a beautiful example of equanimity. He said, we can stand up before our most violent opponents and say, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure it. 
we will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. Throw us in jail, and we will still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. Be assured that one day we will win our freedom, but we will not only win the freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your hearts and conscience, we will win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. That is how expansive it is. It's not just about our individual experience, but about how our practice literally changes the world around us. Simply by being here, by going through the retreat, however it has been, whether it's been difficult or easy or blissful or sorrowful, if you've been able to stay present, which you have, you're still here. And if you've stayed in your seat, which you have, because you're still here, you have come so far in your mindfulness and your equanimity practice, and even if you don't feel that mindful, and even if you don't feel that equanimous, it's still working through you, because you haven't left. And you're holding the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, and you're swimming through this ocean. So I'll close with words from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada. He says, develop meditation like water, fire, wind, and space. For then such a person who, like the earth, is untroubled, who is well-practiced, who is like a pillar of Indra, who is like a lake without mud, continues wondering no more. Peaceful in body, peaceful in speech. One who is peaceful and well-concentrated and who has rejected the world's bait is called one at peace. Equanimity is not passive. It has tremendous power. And it's not surprising that it is the final factor of awakening, that it gives us ballast and the ability to withstand all of the winds, the worldly winds that come our way, gain, loss, pleasure, and pain, etc. You have moved through these seven factors of awakening and have and are observing the awakened mind and the awakened heart. Go out into the world 
and sow the seeds of peace and beauty and love, kindness and generosity. Sow as many seeds as you can, cast them on the earth and let your practice illuminate the world. I am so grateful that you've been here this week and that you've stayed and that you've seen what you've seen because that will illuminate the world even if you don't want it to. <laughs> even if you think, I'm, I'm going to be a hermit, I'm not going to... I don't want to go out there. I'm really happy with what I've done here. I want to stay here. You can't help it now. It's just too bad for you if that's what you're feeling. You cannot help it. You will illuminate the world. And this quality of equanimity will bless you and bless everyone whom you encounter. So, deepest gratitude to you for the practice that you have done. And may it, may it um, help all of the troubles of the world. Thank you so much. Let's sit for a moment.
One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. Time for walking.